This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Navigating Parkinson's disease can be challenging, but we're here to help. Welcome to the Michael J. Fox Foundation podcast. Tune in as we discuss what you should know today about Parkinson's research, living well with the disease, and the Foundation's mission to speed a cure. Free resources like this podcast are always available at michaeljfox.org. Hi, welcome to the Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's podcast. I'm Larry Gifford. This month marks the third anniversary of my PD diagnosis. I'm proud to be a member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, the host of Parkinson's IQ Plus U events. And two years ago, I started a podcast called When Life Gives You Parkinson's to share my family's journey and to give a platform for others to share their PD experience. That second part, sharing other people's stories, is paramount. We all have received Parkinson's diagnoses, but we're all dealt a different hand. Uh, The sentiment is captured perfectly in a favorite adage that I hear in the hallways of the Michael J. Fox Foundation whenever I'm there. If you've met one person with Parkinson's, you've met one person with Parkinson's. What we want to talk about today on the podcast is where are we in regards to being as diverse and inclusive within our Parkinson's communities? From being able to access neurologists in order to get a diagnosis to including black, indigenous, Hispanic, Asian, and other people of color in Parkinson's research. As we begin, uh, I want to set the stage just a little bit. I am 48 years old and I am a white guy. And even though it's a Parkinson's podcast and we're talking about race, it can be some tricky waters to navigate. I am in no ways an expert in research or diversity and inclusion, but I'm learning and I'm learning every day. I realize racism has led to centuries of pain and lifetimes of hurt, and I honor that. Uh, The anti-racism and Black Lives Matter rallies and protests this summer have, have launched thousands of brave conversations as people around the world look at racism, really see it and hear it and begin to understand it. If you're like me, then you're asking tough questions this summer, like, how am I going to change? How are we going to change? What are we, what are we going to do? What should I do? And, and how, how do we heal? For our purposes today, we're asking what role diversity and inclusion has in Parkinson's from lived experience to research. I know I do not have all the answers. I don't necessarily have all the proper language and awareness that I wish I had. And I'm hoping I don't say anything that's insensitive and is not the most current acceptable term. I mean, for me, I'll be driving this conversation from a listening and learning space rooted in curiosity. Now, if I'm doing the listening, who's doing the talking? Well, that is a great question, and I am pleased to invite three panelists to join me today. Bernadette Siddiqui is the Associate Director of Research Partnerships for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Jonathan Jackson is a Ph.D. and founding director of Community Access Recruitment and Engagement, also called CARE, uh, the research center at the Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also the principal investigator 
of the Fire Up PD study. Fire Up means fostering inclusivity in research engagement for underrepresented populations in Parkinson's disease. That study is funded by the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And Maria de Leon, MD, movement disorder specialist, Michael J. Fox Foundation patient council member, and a research advocate. Thank you for your time, your expertise, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Now, I believe we can all agree that Parkinson's is a global disease that affects everyone differently. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the varied causes of Parkinson's and its individualized progressions mean scientists need to partner with a wide variety of patients to understand the disease and develop better treatments. However, until recently, Parkinson's research has largely been focused on a subset of patients, mostly male, mostly of European ancestry. Jonathan, why is that? Oh boy, that's the that's sort of the big question. So why is it that historically we have focused on one kind of person uh, to understand uh, Parkinson's disease? And that's just because they're the easiest to find. Uh, you know, if, if you sort of think about the way we define our supply chains um, in terms of trying to sourcing information for research recruitment, it's it's whoever's available. Uh, it's sort of that just in time. Uh, no inventory model that we've heard about in other sectors, but for our sectors, that's all uh, white men. And it's not just white men, it's it's actually relatively wealthy white men with uh, U.S. Uh, kind of median incomes over, uh, usually over $100,000 uh, annually. So uh, it's it's not all white men, it's a, it's a subset of the most privileged people um, that are able to have access to this research. And there's a lot of reasons why that is, but I'm just glad that... Um, we're finally calling attention to this issue and recognizing that um, by having more inclusive research samples, we might learn something more useful uh, about Parkinson's disease and its uh, treatment and maybe even its prevention. Bernadette, how has the perception affected research participation and the care and treatment that people of color receive? Yeah, so perception of a disease and whether your community can be impacted by disease has an impact on whether you will seek a diagnosis or look for doctors to find the right treatments. For example, um, a study conducted by the Veterans Affair, the VA found that on average, black patients in their network were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease seven years later than the white patients in their clinic. And so what that says is that there's barriers that are keeping communities of color or underserved communities from receiving a diagnosis Um, on time or when their symptoms start to set in. And frankly, if we're seeing people wait seven years to get the right diagnosis, then there means that there are people who don't have the financial resources or the time to actually continue to pursue that diagnosis. So that suggests that we may actually be undercounting or people may actually never receive a Parkinson's diagnosis. And then further down the line, you have questions about who is accessing the right care. So again, uh, research showing that there's um, disparities in the treatment that people are receiving based on their background. So to your question about research participation, it's kind of a domino effect. Of course, if you're not being diagnosed and if you're not going to doctors to talk about treatments, um, you're not going to be having these conversations about research participation and being introduced to opportunities to participate. 
Wow, that's a lot, Bernadette. Uh, <laughs> it's hard, it's hard to, to, to put all that in my brain and make sense of it all, but like, it, it's, it seems like uh, we've got a lot of work to do to, uh, to, to move forward in this area. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, so Jonathan, uh, what do we know about the increased or decreased risk of Parkinson's diagnosis as it relates to one's race? Uh, oh boy. Uh, I, I think the answer, at least the answer, best answer that I could come up with is, is less than we think. Um, uh, so if you can actually look, uh, there have been retrospective studies of, uh, you know, how common Parkinson's disease is, um, going back to the fifties, the thirties, um, even some really early ones from the, you know, looking at part, something that's Parkinson's like from the late 1800s. Um, but what we what we initially thought was, you know, there wasn't so much of a racial difference as much as, much as there was like this north-south gradient. Uh, so, you know, back in the 50s and 60s and even up through the 80s, people just thought that people, place, people who lived in more northern climates um, were more likely to get Parkinson's than in more southerly climates. Uh, you know, some, something similar to what we have um, actually established with, say, multiple sclerosis. Um, more recent research has started to cast some doubt on what we know about the intersection of Parkinson's and race. Uh, I think between the 1980s through the 2010s, there was kind of this clear indication that Parkinson's disease really was uh, a disease of white men. Uh, We didn't think that women got it as much as men. We didn't think that, um, you know, any other race or ethnicity got as much as men. Um, but then you have to go back to some of the things that uh, that Bernadette has, is suggesting. Um, there are these weird biases baked into the data. Um, so, you know, for a lot of this, you have to have a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, uh, which will usually come from a movement disorder specialist. Well, if you think about how insurance in the United States works, um, first of all, you have to have some kind of complaints and then you have to go see your primary care doctor and then you might get referred to a, a neurologist and then you might get referred to a neuropsychologist and then eventually you might see a movement disorder specialist who can give you that formal diagnosis. So that requires time, that requires access, that requires money, that requires somebody to maybe drive you to appointments. Um, and we know that uh, wealthy white men are the kinds of individuals who are most likely to be able to see this process through. Um, you know, that in addition to the, the fact that there are these strange epidemiological biases um, that haven't seemed to penetrate Parkinson's research. So thinking about different kinds of selection and attrition biases, thinking about survival biases, um, different things that might make it less likely for a group to get that diagnosis. And to be counted in these tallies, um, you know, for for other reasons besides not having Parkinson's disease as much, uh, all of that leads us is kind of straight to a, a big question mark. So, you know, we we the research says that Parkinson's disease seems to affect white men more than other groups, um, but I I'm actually highly skeptical of the quality of that data at this point in time. Well, and I think the other the other fact is that if everybody believed it was a white man's disease, it's less likely that your general practitioner is going to look at you as a, a Hispanic woman and go, yeah, this is probably Parkinson's disease. Exactly, yeah. The recent Fox Insight COVID-19 survey results validate previously reported effects on the pandemic on people living with chronic disease, especially people of color. Now, the study found non-white race and lower income were independently associated with difficulty obtaining Parkinson's medications, and those with lower household income were less likely to attend appointments through telemedicine. 
Maria, hello. Uh, you are hello. a movement disorder <laughs> specialist and a person living with Parkinson's disease. Uh, as a movement disorder specialist, what kind of barriers do you see for people of color who have Parkinson's? I agree with Bernadette and Jackson with all the different uh, disparities. The biggest disparity, I think, has to do with economics more than uh, racial issues at times because uh, not having the money to uh, or insurance to go see a physician or the time uh, to have a nanny or to have a you know sitter, especially in communities like the Hispanic communities where you have multi-generational households and you're taking care of uh, you know grandma and also your children is very hard, particularly for a woman uh, to leave in the middle of the day to go to seek a physician, much less to participate in research. Um, some of the biases, as Bernadette was saying, is that, um, you know, the studies, epidemiological studies they've done uh, have been primarily on Medicare patients. Of course, Medicare patients, you know, tend to be mostly, you know, white. Uh, and and so that, that puts a bias. Studying as a movement disorder, of course, you learn that, you know, this is a primarily white, you know, elderly white male disease. Um, but my experience has, you know, been otherwise. And of course, um, that started um, my interest in trying to learn and, and improve epidemiological studies and improve care for, for all people with Parkinson's. Um, growing up in, in Mexico, of course, you never heard of Parkinson's. Now it's as common as, you, as it is in, in the U.S. Uh, I myself was in my late 30s when I was diagnosed. Uh, which was kind of, you know, an unusual thing, even for myself as a movement disorder specialist. You know, my grandmother had Parkinson's, but she developed it later in life. Like, uh, And so for me to be in my 30s and having uh, an illness was definitely something eye-opener. And having those barriers, you know, going to a physician and saying, uh, you're Hispanic, you're a woman, you're in your 30s, why would you have Parkinson's? And I'm like, I'm a Parkinson's specialist. I think I have Parkinson's. Uh, and they're like, but it doesn't happen. Well, you know, why would you want to have Parkinson's? It's not that I want to have Parkinson's, but <laughs> the signs say that I'm having Parkinson's. It took me three years of specialist, uh, three years to get officially diagnosed uh, because everyone kept saying, you're a woman, you're Hispanic, and you're young. Bernadette, I want to know, how does underdiagnosis and suboptimal care for communities of color in clinic affect the research side? Right. So, you know, medical research is about learning a disease so you can find treatments. Um, and so we know that the best way to learn about a disease is to study people who have the disease. Um, however, if you have underdiagnoses, um, you're missing uh, groups of people or communities um, that you won't be able to understand and study how the disease um, affects them, what the symptoms may be more relevant or prevalent um, in that community, and how to treat that. So one, having a, missing a large portion or a significant portion of people who have the disease is going to make us difficult to define and understand how to treat the disease. And then second, if we are studying populations in research, which right now we are, um, who come from a very similar background, it's very difficult for us to kind of 
question the hypotheses that we're generating. So um, I'll give you an analogy, Larry. If I were to, you know, only see brown cats in my life and I went to you, Larry, and said, you know, all cats are brown. Mm -hmm. That's it. There's only brown cats in this world. And you'd come to me and say, well, that's not true. I've seen cats of all different colors, all stripes, you know, that's just not correct. Um, so if we keep studying people um, who have very similar backgrounds, genetic, environmental, we're making assumptions about Parkinson's disease that may not be correct. And it may be driving the development of treatments that honestly may not be effective at all for anyone or only affected for effective for a very limited population. So it really is important for people to be diagnosed and get treatment and have these discussions with their doctors in order to um, find themselves involved in research and helping us to define what this disease looks like to find better treatments. Well, and Jonathan, you're doing just that with the fire up study. Uh, we're all fired up now after hearing all these stories. <laughs> uh, what what is the fire up PD study? Yeah, so it's a full length for the study. the The title is really long, um, but it's very descriptive. So it's fostering inclusivity and in research engagement for underrepresented populations in Parkinson's disease. Uh, so we just call it Fire Up or Fire Up PD, and uh, the Fire Up study is really focused on trying to understand to what extent these factors, all of these factors that we've been talking about, uh, to what extent they really play a role in getting somebody into a Parkinson's research study. Uh, so if you if you've heard anything about uh, trying to recruit underrepresented populations, and for this study we were actually pretty broad, so it wasn't just racial and ethnic minorities. We we're also thinking about women. We also included individuals uh, with relatively low incomes and relatively few years of education uh, in the study as well. So we were really thinking very broadly uh, about who is underrepresented in Parkinson's disease research. I think again, um, you know, if you if you look at the rates of participation. Uh, for most Parkinson's disease studies, uh, we're looking at rates of 90% uh, white. Uh, we're looking at rates of, of over 50% have master's or advanced degrees or doctoral degrees. We're looking at 40 to 50% uh, with, with incomes over like $100,000. You know, this is not representative. We know that Parkinson's exists in people who, who don't look like Michael J. Fox, for example. So, um, you know, in, in the study, we, we decided to, uh, to try to highlight what those barriers might be. Um, and we provided sites with uh, a very clear direction, which is we know that there are disparities in how you are recruiting to research. Uh, go out, find out what those barriers are, figure out a specific population. Uh, and here's a little bit of money to, to actually solve the problem. And that's actually the key. Uh, and what was interesting about this study is that we actually gave sites um, dedicated funding to overcome these barriers. Most research sites um, sort of have thoughts and prayers. They have aspirations to be more diverse, uh, but they're not able to do so. So we, we ran the study for um, uh, about a year, and that included time to pick sites and time for them to uh, get up and running and uh, implement uh, their, their, their particular uh, workarounds for these barriers, and in some cases, um, that meant that uh, the researchers, for the really the first time, were going to the community. They were going to the patients, and they were looking to partner with them, and say, you know, we've got these really hard questions in Parkinson's disease. Uh, you know, do you, do you want to come and help us figure it out? Do you want to come and help us understand what Parkinson's can look like in your community? 
Um, they saw a fantastic response to the community. What we saw was, uh, you know, a really increased rate of, of diversity. So we weren't just getting uh, racial and ethnic minorities, especially in the intervention sites, uh, who were actually able to do something. Control sites, um, you know, they had to kind of continue their normal recruitment practices, but they had this increased awareness of the value of diversity. And what we found is that for those intervention sites, they increased recruitment, not just for our study itself, uh, but also recruiting to uh, an online study run, you know, in part by the Michael J. Fox Foundation, which is Fox Insight. What was really cool is that it turns out that even within these movement disorder clinics, uh, you know, as, as lily white as we like to think that they are, what turns out is that the workflow that they had developed was simply not designed uh, to reach out to those individuals. So what we found is that there were there are multiple barriers that all intersect and overlapped in crazy ways to make it hard to uh, to attract and recruit and retain underrepresented individuals to research. Um, you know, I, I think another way of putting it uh, is is that the way that we do Parkinson's research right now is really, really designed uh, for one type of person. Um, and uh, I think that moving forward, we need to be much more thoughtful about the time and the design and what we are asking participants to do. Um, otherwise, we're going to continue to see, you know, again, that just that that brown cat type of person uh, in our research studies. I see Maria here nodding. Maria, yeah. <laughs> you want to chime well, in here? I, mean, I have uh, several points, but thank you. Yes, that's really, you know, I'm really glad of the work you're doing with Fire Up. One of the barriers that I see often uh, is that when we try to include other non-English speaking communities, uh, we simply translate the material as without taking um, notice of the culture or the cultural significance or the wording. And so uh, this many, many times I've looked at this translated documents and they make absolutely no sense. Thank you for bringing that to light, Maria. That's a really important point and something that Jonathan and his cohorts can consider as they craft Fired Up 2.0. But the Fired Up PD survey results will be released later this year in a paper. And uh, Jonathan, I'm wondering what you think the headline is going to be. Ah, gosh, you know, I, I think that uh, what what I think is great about the Fire Up PD study is that there really is something for everyone. Uh, you know, for folks who are a fan of these, you know, these online studies and thinking about things like the digital divide, uh, we show that it is possible, at least in part, to, to potentially overcome that. Uh, and then for folks like me who are very, very granular and uh, kind of mechanism oriented, um, you know, this study is great because it starts to, to unlock what some of those mechanisms are. Um, so we take a really granular look at different parts of a Parkinson's research design. Um, and we, we asked people, you know, if, if there's a lumbar puncture, is there if there's a DAT scan, if there's a need for a study partner, does that increase or decrease or is it kind of the same in terms of your willingness to participate in a research study? We asked that alongside measures of, of trust uh, and engagement using validated scales. And so, you know, what, what I think is most exciting for me about this study is that now we start to have these precision mechanisms uh, for designing the perfect kind of study in the right community at the right time uh, to ensure, you know, not only that a community is well represented, but that they're also interested in the research. So um, I think there's a lot of really great directions that this work can go next. And I'm just uh, happy to be a part of it and happy to be supported by uh, the foundation. How does that a impact the cost of research? Ah, um, so it turns out that if you think about the, the cost of research, um, 
The number one cost, uh, the number one, I guess, cost inefficiency in research is inefficient recruitment. Uh, we know that most research studies, especially clinical trials, uh, you know, they'll take they'll cost from anywhere from a few hundred thousand to a few billion dollars uh, to get that drug up and running. And it turns out that uh, you can't get anybody enrolled. Uh, you can't keep anybody in the study. Uh, no one knows who you are. Uh, you have these really basic uh, problems that that any marketing student could solve. Um, but what it turns out that what we found in Fire at PD is uh, we gave forty five thousand um, dollars for for six to eight months uh, for intervention sites. We gave ten thousand uh, dollars to control sites. Everybody in our study, all eight sites, intervention and control, improved their diverse uh, enrollment and engagement. They improved uh, in, in terms of uh, you know relationships with the community. People. Um, you know, formed groups uh, that the study uh, the study ended five months ago. They're still meeting on a regular basis, even now in the time of the coronavirus. Um, so, so proportionally, it doesn't have to cost much uh, to make these these different changes. Uh, but you know, historically, clinical research as a field is is relatively conservative. Uh, we kind of do what our mentor taught us, and our mentor does what you know whatever they were taught. Um, and so it's it's totally possible to make these structural changes um, at very little cost or, you know, if you consider the cost overruns uh, at substantial cost savings. Um, but you have a much more generalizable population that allows you to ask much more um, detailed and specific questions about Parkinson's disease itself. So it really is win win. Awesome. Uh, and it's really just a matter of changing our mindset. Another roadblock for for some communities of color is trust or mistrust, whether it's a mistrust of healthcare providers or too trusting of cultural beliefs around aging and disease. Maria, have you experienced trust as an issue, either as an MDS or as a person with Parkinson's? Yes, very much so. Um, and I don't know if it's you know something that is ingrained in us as a culture, you know, because of where we come from, uh, and then you know propagated with myths and stories. You know, he went to the hospital, and you know, horrible things were done to them, and you know, bad things happened. Doctors didn't listen, and so on. So, but even as a uh, physician. I, you know, being Hispanic, I, of course, attracted the Hispanic population. And it was always very interesting that once they found out that I could speak the language, of course, the report increased. But they then they wanted me to take care of them for everything, not just the neurological, you know, illnesses. <laughs> but I was like, I'm your neurologist. I'm your movement disorder specialist. But they're like, yeah, but I can talk to you and you listen and you understand what I'm saying. And so then, you know, can you manage my diabetes? Can you manage... You know, and so then so is that trust that, you know, finding someone that they can open up to and relate, uh, because even things like in Mexico, I remember my grandmother, as I said, um, had Parkinson's and I diagnosed her um, back when she developed symptoms. Um, my grandfather would go to the doctor himself and say, this is the symptoms my wife is having, treat her. So he had never laid eyes on her, you know, to know what was going on. Uh, so she was being treated for all kinds of things. And I took one look at her and said, Grandma, you have Parkinson's, you know, so let's, you know, get you treated. I had to go. So it's, it's that kind of thing sometimes in our communities that they think, well, you know, they're older. And so, you know, things are supposed to happen, uh, you know, so they're not thinking very well they're not walking very well they're falling you know they're just age related so you know one of the biggest issues for me is to try to uh, increase awareness that 
this is not normal aging process that you know that there needs to be uh, evaluation and they can improve with early diagnosis and treatment uh, so they don't just have to suffer in silence and you know be delegated to the back of the room and you know that's grandma or there's mom you know she just you know has some issues so finding the right person and I think because uh, at least in the Hispanic community and I think it has to do with also uh, socioeconomics many people just go to the clinic uh, go to the clinic when they have a problem they don't you know if it's nothing urgent and acute they're not going to go if it's not going to cause them to die then they're not going to go to the doctor they're not going to want you know they're not going to go and make an appointment you know sit their way because they have to work you know, to make, you know, uh, to make ends meet. So that's part of the, the, you know, the whole process. And so having somebody they can relate to that even doesn't, you know, it's not a Hispanic or from the cultural, you know, background they are, but somebody that tries to understand and listen to them and say, you know, understand their plight, that I think that that builds the report. Uh, and it takes some time to, you know, not just the first time, hey, you know, we're best buddies and I'm going to tell you my whole life and this is what's going on. So it really and, and with the way medicine is now, you know, like 15 minutes and that's it, you know. And, and so that even though neurology tends to be a little longer, but still it takes time and rapport to be able to to build that trust. Bernadette, you're a Dominican and Pakistani heritage and your great aunt had Parkinson's when you were growing up. What did you know about Parkinson's as a kid? Yeah, I, I knew very little. And, and honestly, it wasn't until I started working at the Fox Foundation four years ago that it actually kind of clicked for me that she had Parkinson's. It was in reading about the symptoms that I was like, oh, yeah, those were that's what I saw my great aunt had. And so, you know, for me, it, it's this realization about education and awareness of Parkinson's disease is quite limited and it shouldn't require, you know, someone working at the Fox Foundation or like Jonathan having a PhD or, or like Maria being a movement disorder specialist, those shouldn't be the requirements for people to have information about Parkinson's disease to get a diagnosis and to find the right treatments. And so, you know, shockingly, even having someone in my family, I had very little awareness of this disease. And, and it's clearly a point that as a community, we need to change and raise more awareness for this, this disease in communities, particularly communities um, that are disadvantaged and don't have access to this information readily. Jonathan, there seems to be issues uh, on how uh, researchers recruit, discrepancies of treatment, mistrust of yes. doctors, cultural beliefs, stigma yes. around disease. Uh, yes. These are not easy problems to solve. Where do we begin? <laughs> Uh, no, they're, they're not easy problems to solve. Um, and, and I think that is uh, both exciting uh, because it is, uh, it's, there's a whole field uh, of work to do. And there's many, many people who are very excited about this. Um, you know, and, and you know, sometimes I think the limiting factor is that people feel that the solution is simple. Um, you know, there aren't these minorities in research. Well, let's open up our closet full of minorities and let's get them in the door. Uh, and, and it turns out that it, it doesn't quite work that way. Um, it's complex. And, it, and I think the one thing that it really does, um, it, it shows the, the power of, of systemic and structural racism and discrimination. I, I think in short, you know, what we're really starting to recognize is that, uh, you know, racism exists at the level of structures and systems. 
it's not any one person's fault. Nobody means to do it. But nonetheless, uh, you know, it, it does tend to disproportionately affect these folks that have lower societal standing, lower societal privilege. Um, and so that means for the first time uh, that we have this mandate that's very clear, very operationalized, uh, very detailed of how we can start di- uh, of how we can start to dismantle those systems. Uh, and so that to me is very, very exciting because it's it's the big work. Uh, it needs to be done. Uh, and I think for now, you know, with tools like Fire at PD, with the support of the Michael J. Fox Foundation, we can really start to go after that in a very principled way. All right. Bernadette, you're heading up a task force for MJFF on this. Uh, when did the discussion around diversity and inclusion begin at the foundation? So we've been discussing this topic for a very long time at the foundation. Um, our mission is to accelerate the search for treatments for Parkinson's. And we're aware that in order to be successful at that mission, we need to study a diversity of people with this disease. And so for several years, we've been thinking about how is it that we're going to engage these underrepresented communities in Parkinson's research. So I'll say back in 2016, we began funding research around understanding attitudes towards research among the Hispanic community. And then as Jonathan shared in in 2018, we began um, funding and um, initiating the Fire Up PD study. And, you know, it was really in the last year or so, as I think many organizations are doing now, having this conversation of what more can we do? What is the Michael J. Fox Foundation already doing as it relates to diversity and inclusion? We have the Global Genetics Parkinson's Disease Study, which has teams in five nations of Africa, five five teams in East Asia, and a team in India looking at the genetics of these communities. We know that we've studied a lot of genetics, as you said before, Larry, in European populations, but there might be changes in the genetics of people with Parkinson's in these countries that can help us advance the search for for new treatments. So that's one initiative. Another initiative that we've we've had um, a lot of um, influence on for the for the last five years or so has been around training future movement disorder specialists. So each year we fund several um, centers who train the future movement disorder specialists um, in the US and also internationally. And this year, actually working quite closely with Maria, we added a criteria to have these centers explain to us how they're going to train these future doctors to think about diversity and inclusion in their clinical care and research. Another initiative um, that we're working on is called Clear PD. Is a, as you can tell, we like our acronyms. And that's really a, a training program for research staff to help train them on how to recruit um, diverse populations. So to be more inclusive about the way they engage people in Parkinson's research. So this is a training program that we'll be developing and then we can really share that program out with the broad research community. So it's not that these research practices just remain housed Um, at the Michael J. Fox Foundation, but they're shared and being implemented across Parkinson's research studies. Well, that's great. Two last things. One is around um, making sure that who applies to us for funding is also diverse. So there's a lot of research showing that 
um, diverse teams outperform homogeneous teams. And so we are stating in our funding application that we value uh, diverse teams and their diverse ideas. And so we welcome um, research uh, proposals from these diverse teams because we feel that, um, you know, the solutions to this complicated problem of Parkinson's will come from from diverse teams. Lastly, as as we talked about in this in this conversation today, there's a lot that you know I think a lot of communities from could benefit from hearing from people like themselves who have Parkinson's disease. You know, I think I could have benefited from seeing more people like myself growing up who who spoke about Parkinson's disease and shared their stories. And so um, the foundation is um, has started a blog called Racial Bias and the Parkinson's journey um, to share these stories um, with our community so that there is awareness that there are people of color and other disadvantaged groups that live with Parkinson's and that um, their journey may um, also be difficult because of the racist systems that may make it difficult for them to receive a, a proper uh, diagnosis and treatment and participate in research. So using again our platform to, to signal to the research and, and patient community that these are issues that are affecting our community and we can work together to to really try to tackle them and find solutions. I love that you're using story because story is so powerful. I mean, it's how the cultural beliefs started right. and, and became what they are today. And so by telling new stories and with a different angle, you can change those cultural beliefs over time, which is really powerful. Exactly. I, I definitely believe that stories change, really change hearts and, and minds. And so um, the more we can use that medium, I think the more we'll be successful. How can people track the progress of the diversity inclusion initiatives? So, you know, this is work that we do, of course, in the service of the Parkinson's community. We are, you know, accountable to our donors who make this work possible for us. So what we'll be using is our, our platforms, our blogs, our webinars. It, it is very important for us to be transparent about this work. So um, our communications plan is to be on our, our channels, uh, you know, reporting back on how this work is doing. That's, that's great. And you're welcome here anytime. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. Jonathan, how are you feeling today about future research in Parkinson's being diverse and inclusive? How am I feeling? Um, I, I think the if I could sum it up in one word, uh, it would be overwhelmed. Um, I'm overwhelmed with hope. I am overwhelmed with uh, skepticism, uh, just because it seems as though we have so far to go. Uh, you know, so over the course of of this chat, we've talked about. Uh, problems in the epidemiology of, of even understanding where the disparities are in Parkinson's. Uh, we don't know about uh, the accuracy of our tests. Uh, you know, even the ones that are, you know, even keeping it limited to English, we don't know about the accuracy of those tests for all groups, much less translating it to others. We've talked about the, the multiple layers of barriers when it comes to participating in Parkinson's disease research. And I know, I know that we haven't even scratched the surface. Um, so, so on one hand, that means that I'm never going to be out of work. Uh, there's always going to be a job for me, which is great. Uh, always the optimist. But at the, <laughs> but at the same time, I also want to make sure that we can implement uh, solutions that really help people, uh, that help people get a diagnosis. Like, like everyone else on this podcast, uh, I found out uh, last summer uh, that my great uncle Leonard had Parkinson's disease. 
Um, nobody mentioned it before. Nobody knew about it. Um, and, you know, my, my grandmother has sort of mentioned it in passing that it was affecting her brother. And I had no idea it was in my family. Um, and, and, you know, I think like Bernadette said, it shouldn't be, uh, you know, required that you, you somehow be connected to the Michael J. Fox Foundation or, or funded by the Michael J. Fox Foundation in order to figure out that Parkinson's is in your own backyard. Um, so we, we got a lot of work to do. Um, I am feeling hopeful and overwhelmed, and I, I sincerely hope that there are some people out there uh, who will join me in this quest uh, along the way. Maria, what, what message would you like to leave for your fellow medical professionals today? The time is right for, you know, for changing perceptions about Parkinson's treatment, about other neurological diseases, diminishing stigmas and knocking down myths. I think that we've made a huge progress over the last 30 years in neurological uh, science. And I think that uh, we're at the right time uh, with the changes and trying to understand the diversity and trying to uh, improve inclusivity. I think that uh, Michael J. Fox is doing a terrific job with, with trying to improve that and, and other uh, national organizations. But we don't need to forget our physicians, the ones that diagnose and treat the patients. Oftentimes I find that they're kind of a uh, post thought, you know, like, oh, by the way, yes, we need to, I mean, the population is aging, uh, the number of Parkinson's patients is increasing, uh, and we need people that are going to be managing uh, this population and treating this population, so we cannot forget about the people that are at the uh, at the front, you know, of the line trying to take care, and so we, uh, as physicians, uh, are trained, you know, we we see one, we do one, we teach one, you know, and so so we need to be changing the culture of what we see, but that has to do in part of who is around us, you know, in medical school, if there are only a handful of women or there are only a handful of non, uh, you know, of minorities, then, you know, you really don't have a lot to, to go on. Uh, that's the culture. So trying to improve that culture uh, and the type of patients we see and who we're seeing. But I think that for Parkinson's, I have said for many, many years, for over a decade, that um, Parkinson's is a huge umbrella. It's like breast cancer. Uh, there's not one single type of breast cancer. There's many types of breast cancer. And so I think that now that we're focusing on the different minorities and the diversities and the different populations, we may be able to begin to dissect what makes us different. What is it that is causing this population to have Parkinson's versus that? And I think, as I said, and I'm going to close with one of my favorite lines that I said before, that, you know, as Van Gogh said, there's no blue without yellow and orange. You have to understand the uniqueness of each one, the properties of each one, in order to be able to understand the whole. Uh, so that I think that if we begin to dissect those differences, we possibly can find the cure for what else, you know, the, the whole. A better understanding of Parkinson's disease for some means a better understanding of PD for all. And you can play a part. As Bernadette mentioned, the, the Michael J. Fox Foundation is seeking to grow its diverse community to share experiences and perspectives from all touched by Parkinson's disease. If interested, please email your story to shareyourstory at michaeljfox.org, along with the best contact information to reach you. We may share your story in a future communication. 
Download the Foundation's Navigating Clinical Trials Guide to learn the basics of clinical research and the importance of study participants. You'll find the guide in various languages like Spanish, French, Italian, Japanese, and more. The link to the American Spanish Guide is on the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's Podcast. If you like it, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps raise awareness of the podcast. And please share this episode with your friends and followers on social media. For everyone at the Michael J. Fox Foundation who is here until Parkinson's isn't, thank you for listening. I'm Larry Gifford. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's the same handle, at Parkinson's Pod. Be well. Take care of yourself. We'll talk to you next time. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.